everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Two Half Squads. I'm Jeff. I'm Dave. And today with us, we have two guests. Two. <laughs> two. All the way from out east. Well, out east from respective to where we are, we've got uh, Andrew Golden. And then we have on the phone, the old-fashioned way, like they did in medieval times, we have John Gorkowski. Hey, John, how you doing? Hello. Pretty good, thanks. Good. Thanks for joining us. It's great to have you guys with us, and you guys are with us. You're uh, both in Washington D.C. and you're with the D.C. conscripts. Is that is that it? That's correct. That's what they that's yeah. what they tell us. Yeah. <laughs> really glad <laughs> you could join us tonight. I say a conscript by definition never does anything voluntarily. So we we, we, we do as we're told. That's good. That's good. So. so We've never we've never met before, and I don't know if you guys listen to the show. If you don't, of course we do. We're going to talk. <laughs> we're glad you could be with us. So, can you give us a little history? Maybe start with a little history of uh, you guys and your gaming and and the DC conscripts in general. Andy, uh, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll go ahead and kick off. Uh, I'm probably dating myself by uh, by fessing up, but uh, I feel like we're in a safe space here, so I'll go ahead and out <laughs> myself. As uh, I first got introduced to Squad Leader when uh, my friend John, uh, John Muller, bought a copy, probably in 1980, uh, and uh, we were playing that and a couple other sort of military-style board games, and there was something about Squad Leader which, which we found really attractive. I think it was the machine guns and the morale and the leadership and, you know, no other game uh, at the time, uh, you know, had that. Uh, so, uh, of course, you know, schoolwork, whatever, uh, uh, ASL came out. I got into that. I was really impressed uh, with, with how the game had kind of been upgraded uh, and uh, the additional layers of, uh, of complexity to it, which, uh, you know, I... Again, I'm preaching to the converted here, but uh, you know, ASL it, it really is the, the the most realistic, you know, game of its type, hands down. Period. Um, so uh, the DC conscripts. Uh, I want to ask John when when the conscripts first started kicking. Uh, was sort of like uh, you know the Phoenix. You know, it'll fly for a while and then uh, crash and then rise from the ashes again. Uh, you know, when, when it, whenever a, a hero uh, emerges, I think uh, the conscripts first got their start uh, probably in the mid, I want to say the mid to late 90s. At least that's the that's the earliest part that I know of, although uh, people in the you know D.C. area have been you know, playing ASL really for for quite some time. Uh, we uh, gained the benefit, if you will, of being you know, a fairly easy drive up to up to Baltimore. You know where, of course, Avalon Hill uh, came from, and uh, still, um, uh, you know, obviously uh, with, with MMP in Millersville, Millersville, Maryland, it's you know it's just 45 minutes or so, 45 minutes an hour away. So uh, I think one of the characteristics, or I say one of the other key characteristics, if you will, of the DC conscripts is, uh, you know, I, I will say hands down that that we do have some of the best players in the hobby. Period. Uh, you know, people like Gary Fortenberry. Uh, John Stadick, you know, these guys have been playing, you know, for, for decades and, uh, you know, they, they win tournaments and, and do all that stuff. So if you show up to uh, a DC concert get together, you know, you never hope, you never know who you're going to find, but it's just likely, you know, you're going to be playing with or against, you know, one of the guys who, you know, I, I hate using the word expert, but, you know, long time player, really, really good. Um, so uh, that's, uh, sort of, uh, so more recently, uh, I got back into ASL, if you will, I guess in the early, you know, right around 2010, 2011, uh, when I just happened to find myself with some more time on my hands. How did that happen? I was in, <laughs> I think I was in <laughs> Afghanistan when somebody sent out an email, you know, to, to the conscripts list saying, hey, let's have a club meeting. And I, I was so surprised and pleased that, uh, you know, that interest was percolating again. I replied, say, hey, I, I'd love to come. It's just that I'm out of town <laughs> for a while. So yeah. he, he hit me up for, you know, who else can I talk to? And I had some other some other contacts and uh, uh, he, he managed to to get the list going again. Um, sort, sort of more recently. Uh, well, I, I, you know, looking back at it, I, I think that one of the keys to success, if you will, is, is that it does take the occasional hero 
you know, to run with that demo charge and, you know, place it on the side of the tank and, you know, to, to really make something happen. And uh, I think that, you know, we've been lucky in that, you know, whenever, you know, the 10 minus three takes a bullet to the head from the sniper, there's someone else who, who steps up to do it. So uh, that's, that's a lot <laughs> that's of game charge. You really got to know the game to understand all that. Yeah, I can back up what Andy said. Yeah. The, uh, I, I came back to the Northern Virginia area in the mid-90s after my naval service and started looking for uh, squad leader games to rejoin because I had played in high school. And I found the DC conscripts. And then so I was able to use my ASL stuff um, and back then, the DC Conscripts was a really big club. We would meet once a month in Fairfax, Virginia, mm-hmm. with, yeah. you know, easily 20, 20 people in attendance. Yeah. And you could just walk in and find a game if you hadn't bothered to arrange one in the week preceding. It was terrific. And we had some, you know, some uh, really, uh, you know, top-ranked players. Uh, and that went on for a few years. And then I, uh, I went off to uh, do some work with the State Department, lost touch with the club um, in the early 2000s. And then I came back circa 2010, and uh, it was all gone. There was, there was very little structure and very infrequent meetings, not much going on. But I, I kept inquiring, and I was looking for the old crew, and onesie, twosie, I started finding people. Um, and then I, I encountered David, David Garvin, who was the uh, Canadian on duty here for a while? Who basically <laughs> held the club together for us? Yeah, he was our he was our ten uh, three for a while there, and then uh, we started uh, having more meetings. We leveraged the Senior Citizen Center a couple of times, yeah, and some yeah. other venues to to convene people. And then I started uh, I kind of uh, restarted our old newsletter. I remember from the 1990s we had a newsletter called Scripts which was really well done, quite humorous. And then I put together uh, more recently Red Banner to try and just have something written about our meetings. So now, you know, we, we generally uh, meet once a month, thanks to largely to Andy and his organizational skills. And uh, steady attendance of six, seven, eight people um, with, uh, again, as many who don't make it because they're busy with other, other parts of life. But... Um, we're uh, we're carrying on, and we have a good core, solid cadre. It it does seem like there was uh, an uptick in attend in interest in ASL in general around 2010. I don't know if that's because of the two half squads podcast, which has been uh, <laughs> in 2008, and we were rekindling some of that, or, or the internet. Uh, don't know. A lot no, of guys you, we, came back in. Now, we do know uh, we've had a lot of letters where they attribute us to one guy wrote famously, curse you for making me go back out and buy all that stuff again. <laughs> that I had sold. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but, I, um, I think it's also kids, right? Like people getting through the child rearing ages, maybe. Is that also? Oh, yeah, that takes, up a, that takes up a lot of time and attention. And there's a 10 year gap there where you can't, yeah. you can't spend time on the hobby. And, you know, the hobby is, uh, all things considered, it's not that expensive. You know, a full kit of ASL is costs as much as one year of golf. So not, 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 not that expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Really yeah. a movie and a popcorn, uh, once a week right. is, is 20 bucks, you know, so it adds up. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, going back to John's point, uh, I think uh, a club really needs uh, probably three or four things, at least three three things to kind of be successful and durable. Uh, I'd say, uh, one, like I said, you know, uh, leadership and heroes, someone who's going to stand up and say, yeah, I'll, I'll organize the event this month. You, you need uh, somebody to help stay in touch and uh, to kind of generate interest uh, during the month. And uh, that's why I, I think John has done yeoman's work really with with the red banner you know prodding uh, you know needling people for articles and, and submitting game game write-ups 
and then uh, you know, I'd say a third thing uh, that I think you need is you need to have a regular club meeting schedule because uh, we've got probably I think it's 110 people on on the email list. Um, I don't get any bounce backs. I know all the emails are good. Uh, so uh, you know, but whether or not you know Jeff, Joe, or John can come on any particular month, like John said, you know, it just varies depending on on who's coming. Um, I think uh, something like I said, kind of touch on something else. Uh, going in our favor is uh, prox physical proximity to MMP. Um, you know, the D.C. area, uh, as it's grown, uh, kind of gets people who, who come in and come out of town. Uh, you know, people will be assigned here for two, three years, work at the Pentagon, whatever, uh, and then and, and then roll on. So I, I, um, anyway, I, I think all of those are factors, if you will, that, that work in our favor. Right. And, you know, the best part of the hobby, of course, is playing the game. Um, and <laughs> we right. do a good deal of that here. We get plenty of face to face play. I think we're we're well positioned. But another thing that's really good is writing. And as the uh, long suffering editor of our little red banner, I urge people <laughs> to just go ahead and submit any written item you have. You know, you don't have to be a scholar. Um, we all have great games where really um, outlying events occur. And they're, they're fun to write about. It only takes three to five sentences to relay for the rest of the audience, you know, how your Italian hero saved the day by right. single-handedly taking out a tank or something like that. And it, and it happens every game, something Or amazing. the lucky shot on the Panther, which John wrote about in, in great detail in, in one of the Red Banners. And yeah. yes, Panther's mine. Just so. record it. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Record it send it in. <laughs> it's great yeah. fun to read. Yeah. So, uh, I... John, I, I haven't told you this, but uh, the, the next article you're going to get from uh, me and uh, Eric is uh, our Comp Group Piper uh, campaign game right up. Uh, we, uh, Good, we that'll finished. be fun. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it, we actually, again, you know, one of the great things about Vassal is you've got everything right there. Uh, even though Eric and I live only 20, 30 minutes away, it's just easier to do it on Vassal because, you know, we can come, you know, crank up the game after the kids get to bed, you know, play for a couple hours and then, you know, pick up again a couple of days later. Um so uh, actually, I, I now that I think about it, I, I think Vassal, uh, even though it's not always as good, it's I mean it's a different experience from face-to-face -face play. Uh, yeah, honestly, that, that's one of the things that, that keeps me in the game for myself. Yeah. Yeah. There's no no question about it. And uh, Dave and I, we talked about Vassal for years and years and years, and I had sort of tried it, dabbled in a, a little bit, but. Just couldn't get into it, and then COVID happened, and I think it forced a lot of people to go into it. And now, can I say this, Dave? Should I you tell can. You, you can. We said, you know, Dave and I only live about eight minutes apart. Ah, and I can ride my said, bike you know, there. Yeah. We said, boy, we should, let's get together now. We're all vaccinated. Let's get together and play. And then we thought about it, and we thought, you know, this Vassal thing is really working out pretty well. Because, like you say, you can play a couple hours. Very easy. There's nothing to clean up or put away. And uh, I'm a big fan of, of not having much to, just in the original setup. I'm not a big fan of setup. Dave, Dave used to come over and play and, and I would I would just have all the counters out just trying to dig through them. That, I'm like, oh, oh, you don't have oh. a defense set up, Jeff? <laughs> I you have the counters out. It's painful digging them out. Oh, Vassal, it's so easy. But yeah, that's been uh, that's been a really interesting aspect of the hobby. That so I, I don't know what's going to happen, but at least it's it seems to have gotten people maybe back into the game and kept them in the game, you know, even even while we're uh, we're all quarantining. So you mentioned something about having people kind of come in and, and go uh, because of they're visiting the D.C. area for a little time. Does that does that happen a lot? You have is that the military uh, guys or is that yeah. Well, uh, some, uh, you know, in, in the past, the D.C. area has acquired a reputation as being transient, right? So you, you come to D.C. for a job, you, you work it for, for a few years, and then, you know, maybe you go back to where you came from or, or you go someplace else. Um, I don't know, John, what do you think? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's everybody's story here. You know, uh, Northern Virginia attracts this enormous pool of federal and military employees 
Mm-hmm. So our a lot of our military people are only in in town for the duration of a tour. Um, and you know I'm I, I'm with the State Department, and I had overseas assignments that took me away three four years at a time. Um, and so in and out in and out, and you know most people are on that schedule, and you see it in every aspect of our lives, schooling and uh, you know kids sporting teams etc. And of course you see it in ASL, where a lot of people come and go. Um, Fortunately, I'm getting older now, and I have more stability, and so I can stay here. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, so now my my opponents are more uh, uh, veterans, you know, in the in the sense of we've been here for a while, and they're in a similar situation. You know, they're coming that time in their career where they're having to move a lot is coming to a close, and they're able to be more stable, and so we get uh, you know more time together here to play the game. So works out well. It must be interesting, though, to to have people come in uh, and bring however they have learned to play their styles or whatever. Because I hear about this. Dave, when when we talk to – when we go to the ASL Open and we'll talk to players from overseas, they'll say other players from certain areas, you know, have a certain kind of a distinctive style or a way of playing that – sometimes surprises them or, you know, gives them a different perspective than they had before. So that, that must, yeah, you always, uh, you always learn, learn from these other people. And that's one of the critical elements of, of going to a convention. I remember the first convention I went to, I think it was Avalon con in like 1996. (laughs) And I played six scenarios and I lost five of them. And each one was like, Whoa, that's how bounding first fire works. Like I had read about it in the rules and I knew it was there, but then to actually witness it, uh, you know, at the hands of somebody who knew what they were doing. Uh, and, and so, so many aspects of the game are like that. You are vaguely aware of it, but you can't really make it your own until you witness it. And that's usually done by, you know, a new person who introduced you to it. Yeah. I and sat and watched yes. Gary. <laughs> I sat and watched Gary Fortenberry, uh, at the, um, Aslock way long ago and watched him smoke the enemy machine gun nests and i was just shocked like oh my gosh that yeah, is exactly. so effective it almost yeah. seems like cheating <laughs> yeah exactly you have to learn these things one at a time and these are painful lessons yeah but yeah. that's how it happens yeah yeah I, I, absolutely and uh I'm making another plug for the Red Banner here. I think that's why it's important to uh, read whatever you can. Um, say, especially if you can't get in the game or you can't really play as much. If you can read about, uh, again, uh, like a, a scenario after action review uh, or one of my favorite articles harkening back to the old General Magazine is still the uh, the scenario replay where you've got you know, a player from side one and a player from side two and then you've got the neutral observer and the neutral observer says, well, you know, they got this rule wrong, and they could have done that. They could have done. They could have, could have done the other. So, uh, I, I think that's a great way to learn. And uh, this uh, this article upcoming, John, will uh, hopefully be like that. Like I said, it's me and Eric, and uh, I hope to recruit Dave Garvin as, as a neutral uh, third party commentator. So, hopefully, it'll be really good. Yeah, these are always helpful. Oh, we had a little blip there. We're all still here? Yeah, looks like yes. we're back. Yes. Okay. Um, I noticed look, looking at the red banner, uh, you do have a scenario also in every issue, and it's produced quarterly. Um, yeah, we've, we've done a lot of scenarios, um, and we've paused now as we play test and reformat. So um, I think we've, we've made about 10 of them, um, and now we're trying to make them better rather than make new ones. Yeah. Uh, okay. And who brings those? Uh, who do, do you have one or two people that are kind of uh, eager to bring scenarios in that they that they want to try creating? Um, I think we have uh, three, four contributors. Four four of our members have contributed scenarios, um, and they're all pretty good. You know, uh, these are labors of love. Uh, the hard part of scenario design is. Um, watching somebody else uh, 
uh, chop up what you submitted, like like yeah. any other any other artistic endeavor. But you know, yeah. the the original author of something is not necessarily the best judge of how fun or fair it is. And so that's the development process, and that's what we're in right now for these other scenarios. Like I said, I think we got four contributors. Happy to have more, but it's like writing. It's so hard. It's like pulling teeth, getting people to do this stuff. And it's uh, it's not it's not hard to do, and it's part of the fun of the game. Um, so, I always uh, I'm always welcome submissions. Yeah. It's right. John will make you famous. Just send it in. We'll we'll edit it, get your comments, and then uh, you're famous. Yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. run link, <laughs> links to all of this uh, on the show. But I I noticed Gary Fortenberry is only standing as in ninth place on the ladder for the DC Council. <laughs> How can that yeah, be? Yeah, I think I, I. Well, we get a little slack in terms of tracking our games. We don't always report every game, and you know some of the veterans like Gary, you know they don't play as much as they used to, right? So, um, they've they've lost some of their edge, um, and uh, they could get it back again if they if they were vigorous players. But if you don't play like at least once a week, you uh, you know you start to lose some of that with that edge well yeah it's it's i well today i moved a whole stack i thought i was out of jeff's line of sight and then when he's pointed out that i was still in his line of sight it, again after I, i've played <laughs> over 1333 games now in my lifetime i've tracked all of them and i just figured <laughs> screw it i'm going to move as a stack to go further what are the odds and of course he rolls a three and then they all have to route <laughs> through the woods, and then he moves up a J ne- next to me, and I'm DM again, and then he rolls, uh, I don't know, what was it, a four, Jeff? He got K slash yeah. four on the whole yeah. stack. And I'm like, okay, I, why would I make that dumb rookie mistake when we preach against it on the podcast all the time? You just feel like, oh, come on, what are the odds, you know? And then, and yeah. then not bringing up guys to protect them when they were all sitting there broken in the front of the... They had to be out front because you had to put some on this other board. And my goal was, all they're going to do is move back and join the forces and protect the village. That's all I wanted to do. And it just went so bad. And it, and I'm playing every week. <laughs> I just can't explain the stupidity sometimes. Well, uh, you know, uh, that's uh, that's how quickly good men die. And, and I, I think <laughs> uh, I, I think one of the things I find so compelling about the game is that uh, is the luck factor. Uh, you know what? What I found, you know, in, in my own you know, military experience, is uh, is that you can do everything right and still get killed, or you can totally screw up, and, and if you're lucky, you'll you know you'll sail through, you know, flags flying. So uh, you know, I, I know people get frustrated, you know, with, with the luck aspects of the game, and, and you know, so do I, uh, you know, from time to time. But uh, on average, over time, the the better players who play well win and uh, i i think of real life because because in real life you can't control everything there's always some element of chance you know at, at the end of the day it, it it still could go either way but again in the game anyway you know good players tend to tend to win more than players who are not yeah absolutely true yes and it tends to balance out the you know the the, the medium-sized scenario also, but it, it adds to that fun element. I, I had our rookie over last week, uh, two, two weeks ago, our first backed in person, uh, and was teaching this guy. He'd only played one game before we stopped for COVID. He, he loves all the other games he does. He was doing my miniatures games with me and stuff, and he bought Gloomhaven and was learned, teaching himself at all kinds of stuff he's doing. But um, he commented on the dice factor, and I said, well, you know, there are games where it's just if you have a four factor against a three, you just take it over, and it's this has its own magic when machine guns can break and then be repaired, and it, it just, to me, it's just a lot more fun. It definitely yeah, is a lot more fun. Game, I think... A lot yeah, of people ahead, miss that a big part. Of, a big part of the game is um, probability and managing probabilities. Mm. So luck, luck is a part of the game, but what's a bigger part of the game is managing probability. Mm-hmm. So you know some some events aren't going to go your way, 
And so how do you, uh, you know, manipulate your pieces to reduce the impact of bad luck? And, you know, how do you make your opponent pay when he takes a risk and suffers a bad luck? And this is a, this is a big part of the game is all this probability management. And you'll notice that excellent players are always doing something to shield themselves from bad luck. And they're usually well positioned when you make a mistake to take advantage of it. Yeah. To disrupt to surround yeah. the broken guys and, in the front. And exactly. Yeah. And, and to John's point, I don't remember if I read it in, you know, an ASL fan or if someone you know, told me that you know, John's point, which is, or maybe it was John who told me that, uh, you know, successful players do a better job of managing probability than than their opponents. I mean, you could uh, uh, recently, or say not all that recently, but a friend of mine and I played uh, sing, the singling campaign game, which is a blast. It's a real challenge, uh, you know, to to play the Americans, especially if you're not that familiar with the ins and outs of. of but I'll tell you what, you you play that campaign game two or three times, switching sides, you'll 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 figure it out. And uh, in in singling or really most any game, if you can if you can manipulate it so that you've got even just like a an additional down one on that shot, it's going to be the difference between hitting and missing. Always amazes me how it doesn't seem like it could, but it does make it make the difference. That neg one makes all the difference. It's so true. And I remember when I first started playing, you know, I I think, well, well, you know, what are the odds? What are the odds? What are the odds? And it's so many times I lost because I wasn't correctly thinking about how that worked. That yeah. still happens to me. Yeah, still happens to me. So, so you guys also have a tournament. Is that uh, that's the human way? We have not been there. Someday we might, but <laughs> we're just not good at getting around much uh, together. To, uh, but it would be fun to come out and interview everybody out there one day. Absolutely. Well, look, so, it's uh, it, it, it's a direct flight from Chicago. I used to do it all the time. <laughs> so it's Human so, Wave. Yeah, tell us about that coming up. Uh, well, this sure. this Human Wave is going to be different because it's outside. We're going to do it under tents. So oh. um, usually we're inside, but, you know, given yeah. the uh, the pandemic situation, oh, sure. we had to plan this months ago. So months mm-hmm. ago when we were looking at this, we said, well, you know, what's the safest way to do this? We don't know what's going to happen in the future. But um, so we went for the outdoor effort, um, which which I think will be pleasant. I've played outside several times yeah. um, in recent months, and it's it's really nice. You know, you're at a table under an umbrella. Um, and it's it's quite nice. So as long as it doesn't get scorching hot or we don't have gale force winds, it's it's quite manageable. And that's that's how it'll run this time. So far, I think we have seven people signed up for the in-person, four people signed up for the Vazel, um, okay. which is maybe half the attendance we've gotten in the past. But like I said, given the circumstances, that's not a bad thing. We'll think of this as a rebuilding year, get together, mm-hmm. have some fun. Um, right. And then next year, return to a more normal situation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the previous year, uh, we had uh, I think it was twenty or twenty five people. You know, we rented uh, a, a really nice room at uh, you know a local hotel. It, it was a really good event. Uh, I, I'm I'm really glad it went off well. And uh, like I said, people, I, I was surprised people came in from out of town. You mm-hmm. know up and down the east coast to to come to this thing and uh a lot of credit for that i think goes to david garvin his uh leadership and organizational skills uh honestly i was kind of skeptical that we'd be able to pull it off but we did and uh so that was a lot of fun and uh for this year i give john credit for uh for for again being being the hero and uh, uh helping put the plan together at least to coming up with the idea uh as far as uh, again, if we want to talk about risk management, right, the, the, the greatest risk, if you will, we have is actually the, the, the cost of the deposit for uh, of, of the room in, in whatever hotel we want to meet in. And, um, you know, especially if you want to get a nice central location, you know, that can be kind of expensive. And uh, like John was saying, you know, when we, uh, I think we, we started planning this in, in like 
probably October, November, December timeframe. And it was really hard to anticipate, you know, what was going to be next as far as what was going to open and what wasn't going to open. And in my conversations with different hotels, you know, of course, it's a case of the deposit is non-negotiable. And, you know, we weren't going to try to second guess whatever the governor was going to sign or not sign mm -hmm. as far as capacity restrictions and, and, and all that stuff. So, uh, uh, I, I, you know, we were right on the edge of just saying to heck, to heck with it. We'll, we'll do it on Vassal again. But uh, John, to his credit, came up with the idea of saying, hey, we just play in my backyard. So so this year's Human Wave is uh, is going to be in the backyard, like John said. I, I think it'll be a lot of fun. Oh, okay. So actually in John's backyard. <laughs> See, uh, it's a secret undisclosed location in Northern Virginia, which will be revealed <laughs> only to attendees uh, moments before your start time. <laughs> You don't get, pick them up at the airport and put that hood over their head. And... <laughs> that, that's kind of a good idea. Maybe we should look into that. Yeah. Very nice. That's a nice idea. I hope that turns out well. That's July 9th through 11th. And, of course, if anybody still would like to attend, they can just go to your uh, humanwaveconscripts.com and uh, they could probably sign up there. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. yes. We're, we're, we're happy to take more people. Uh, we've got a cap at 16 this year. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So mm -hmm. if, if, you're, if you want to come in serious, then, you know, sign up sooner rather than later. Yeah, good. Well, you and you might. You might when people know that, uh, because I know a lot of the tournaments have been canceled or, or just switched completely to Vassal. And I don't know how that works for tournaments um, I, I guess some people like it, but uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's good that you're edging your way back to normalcy. That feels really good. Yeah, we we did Vassal uh, for the Human Wave last year, and it was fun. It was a successful tournament. Um, I want to say we had either twelve or fifteen people, which was you know, I thought that was a really good number. And uh, one of the fun things about it was we we had people sign up to play, you know, from literally around the world. Uh, David was running it, of course, from Canada, and uh, I got to play. Uh, I got to play. So one one gentleman was in Spain, and I think the other one was in Taiwan or something like that. Wow. So, yeah. But yeah. So it, it was it was a lot of fun. We we had a good time. Yeah. So tell now me the vassal, the, well, the vassal part, it takes longer, right? Dave Goldman from the ASL Open kind of saying it took longer for people to be able to coordinate their schedules with uh, playing their opponents because it, everyone wasn't there on the same weekend. Did you find that to be the case also? It, uh, yes, uh, it, especially, yeah, especially if you're talking about cross time zones. Uh, I, I think what we did was uh, we gave uh you know each match if you will uh 24 hours to play so that way regardless of the times are different you could you know you you could work something out um so obviously instead of doing it over two or three days it, it uh, we took i guess it was four five actually um uh, we used i think we used the castle the uh, canadian uh the canadian open uh, open rules for it and you know that along with some stuff that uh, i think i thought it was steep play about who posted it on the Game Squad? Uh, some ASL tournament rules there, or Vassal rules. It, it, it worked really well. So I'm curious, uh, John. What what do you like to play? What are there particular kinds of scenarios that you like to play? Or oh yeah, particular oh, hardware. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What do you yeah, like? Yeah, my, uh, my my favorite is Kursk. I like all the Kursk scenarios. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I love the infantry armor mix, especially when the armor is sort of at parity. So no, no one side is completely dominating the field where each 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 guy's tanks are vulnerable to fire from the other guy's tanks. Um, and that that um, that time frame also illustrates, you know, s sort of the uh, the fundamentals of armored warfare, and you can really see the differences. In the opposing armor, you know the T-34s, uh, so much more effective up close, and you know the Panzer IV armor is weaker, but very good, you know, a sort of medium range, 
And then you've got, of course, the Tigers and the Ferdinands, which are just ludicrous at long range. Um, and then they, they, they can only be dealt with at close range. And so all these uh, sort of, you know, key tactical questions come into play through those kinds of scenarios. And, um, you know, there's lots of situations that would resemble that. Any sort of combined arms action from the middle of the war uh, pretty much fits that pattern. And then uh, on the other side, there's scenarios I don't particularly like. Um, and uh, it's hard to think of some that I really don't like. I mean, you know, the game just offers so many, uh, so many opportunities to sort of examine the, the history and all of its, its variety. So I guess there's a reluctance on my part to get involved with caves because, uh, you know, reading all those additional rules for that esoteric situation, uh, it just seems, um, you know, too much effort for not enough reward, not, given yeah. everything else you could play, all the other stuff you could do. Why spend all that time learning caves? I have yeah. dutifully learned everything and played all the scenarios because that's just how I am. It's like my job or something when I buy yeah. a game. But, yeah, revisiting it. And even Jeff and I did the show on the landing craft, and then it ends up we coming out in the action pack that I think Fortenberry did. Yeah, this mil, um, you know, the, the, the one with uh, a lot of the Japanese scenarios. AP 86 and 85 and all these. And there was one with landing craft. And as soon as we got the board set up, we kind of laughed. Like, we just did a show on this, and how do we shoot at these things again? <laughs> you know? Exactly. It takes so much effort to remember those yeah. corner cases. Yeah. yeah, so we, you know, luckily these were unloaded really quickly, and we didn't have to deal that much with going back through that rule section. But but anyway, it's uh, that's totally true. Um, yeah, so we're, we're playing a lot of Pacific, and, it, and I, I do like that a lot, just with the way the Japanese stripe and and the that hidden bit when you're you have you know you can go right through them and they pop up behind you because you didn't search the hex and all that kind of stuff in the jungle and that's a lot of fun yeah but, the uh, nationality distinctions are terrific yeah but we're not doing caves currently <laughs> until one pops yeah. up i don't know if fortenberry put one in that pack or not we'll we'll find out soon <laughs> yeah i guess we'll find out yeah, my favorite, uh, uh, my favorite is uh, definitely uh, U.S. versus German, sort of June '44, June December '44. Okay. Uh, I, I guess it's because we played singling so much. I, I, I don't know, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I think it's really challenging. Uh, <clears throat> John touched on a, a couple of interesting points. Uh, you know, Sherman versus Mark IV, or even the Stewart versus uh, you know a heavy German tank. Uh, on its face, it seems like a real mis, uh, mismatch. Uh, uh, but if you, again, if you can really learn, understand the ins and outs of American armor, you know, the, the smoke and the gyro stabilizer and bounding for fire and doing gun duels and, and the possibility of multiple hits, you know, with, with that 75 against the flank of a you know, panther or something, it, 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 get, it gets to be really, really, uh, uh, real interesting. I think uh, the the favorite kind of types of games uh, that I like are, are the campaign games. Um, I feel like the campaign games are quote unquote you know more realistic, right? Because uh, in a well, as everyone knows well, in a regular scenario, you've got the you know end of turn, you know end of game. Oh crap! I've got one more turn, so I'm gonna throw everybody at them. Yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't feel like that's a very very realistic way to do it, but no. it's fine. Uh, but of course, in the campaign game, you don't want to do that because it'll give you less to work with it in, in the next round. Yeah, yeah. You know that true. reminds me of that reminds me of something I think about a lot is that end of game, last turn, suicide rush. That's often a consequence of how the victory conditions are written, and so mm -hmm. you know we've you know we fall into these ruts in our hobby, and we say like you know to win side a must capture the building by the end of the game. And that kind of victory condition is generating that circumstance. So if you modify the victory conditions, a lot of times you can alleviate those sorts of situations. Put a combat victory 
point cap on the attacker. Yeah, stuff like without, that. Stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah, Dave and I just played a scenario from this uh, action pack where uh, there was a victory condition where if he took over a certain number of buildings by the end of turn, was it turn two, Dave? Or three? three. Turn, turn three. three. That, yeah. He would win. If he didn't, then it would have to, then by turn five, he would have to do something different. And by turn seven, it was something different. And I like the way, I actually like the way that turned out, even though I lost in turn three, he, he managed to, to get that, that, yeah, he managed to get that building, even though he did another, he, he did another one of those. Can I tell this, Dave? He, I yeah. will anyway. Another one of those stacks, he ran a stack down the beach <laughs> right past my 137. <laughs> On the uh, beach. It's a three seven. I'm Japanese. They're both snake eyes, and uh, oh on. my! Yeah. yeah. Again, I'm like, well, uh, I, what are I the can... odds? Wow. But that kind okay, of victory condition, I actually like the way that. Yeah, go ahead, John. I've had some. I've had some games where you know the other guy. It's like last turn. I'm moving on to the victory objective. The other guy needs to roll snake eyes to knock me out. And he says, come on, snake eyes. And sure enough, there they are. Yeah, that's brutal. <laughs> that is that's brilliant. 36 chance, right? Yeah, and that seems to, seems to happen to me a lot that I'm calling the, you know, break the gun. But I'm sure I say it a bunch of times it doesn't happen. I just remember the times that it actually happened when I called it. But Correct. Yeah, it Correct. never happens when you're at the craps table, that's for sure. No. <laughs> now, um... I notice also here that is is this for real, Andy? You did a symposium on machine guns at at the club meetings. Yes, yeah, that was last month. Um, uh, uh, again, uh, it, it's see, I think something that we figured out is, is that it's important to have regular meetings and you know put it on the calendar so everybody knows about it. It's easier to come. You kind of you, you develop some more momentum. And in uh, kicking around some ideas with the uh, with the central committee, um, we we the, the the committee decided that uh, we we would offer uh, some some workshops. Uh, so uh, it just kind of serve as additional draw. The uh, so yes, uh, last month uh, it was it was machine guns, and I guess you could kind of call it a, a, a rules walk. Uh, I think I posted. Uh, my notes on that yeah yeah, the I, handout. yeah yeah exactly yeah so I, I simply step through you know each rule kind of what it means and uh you know periodically we we would do some some examples okay here's my rate of fire here's your fire lane you know let's let's see what happens when you try to cross this you know two down two fire lane okay well roll some dice oh that didn't work out very well oh you got lucky that time uh, you know so by kind of covering the rules and then kind of like John said, you know, applying them immediately, you're, you're more likely to remember. Uh, plus, the, the other thing that it does is, is that it helps uh, it helps get uh, kind of upgrade, if you will, the, the, the skills of our members, especially those guys who are playing starter kit uh, or, or guys who are just getting back into the game, you know, after some hiatus for some time. So, you know, uh, kind of helps you know, upgrade the skills, help guys feel more comfortable with it. It's, it, it, it's a win. Um, this month, uh, actually, at the end of this week, and uh, in, in our regular meeting, we've got to to go into the ins and outs of concealment. Yeah, so that'll see. be fun. Um, cool. And right. how long is the pre? So this is on a club evening meeting time. Yeah, uh, our, our regular uh, meeting time is at 10 o'clock at uh, a game store in Fairfax City called Games Comics Paradise. Oh, they Saturday. It's on Saturday. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> I got to make the play. Hey, they're, they're, uh, they're nice people. They're always very accommodating. Uh, I feel a little badly, you know, we should probably buy more of their stuff. Uh, uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, uh, they, they've got a, a nice size game room kind of uh, in, in the back and like we've never been pushed out. There's always plenty of room. Um, so that's uh, and Fairfax City is you know centrally located for us in Northern Virginia, kind of DC area. Um, and then do people take a break to go to the uh, conference or symposium or, or lecture? <laughs> the lecture. Workshop. The workshop. Uh, well, uh, we uh, I think what we figured out is 
up at uh, 1,100 hours with the, with the workshop. Uh, I had uh, originally planned for the quote-unquote workshop. You know, I, I thought it would just be 20, 30 minutes, uh, but we ended up going probably better part of an hour just with some questions and answers and running through some examples and things like that. Uh, and then uh, and then it was game time. Cool. That's, That's a great cool. touch. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it gives um, – it seems like it makes it a little more social rather than people just – coming in and sitting down with their opponent and they become and, and, and this little unit that doesn't interact. Yeah. So yeah. that's nice. And then I noticed on your links page, you don't have any podcasts linked on your links page. Oh, I'll, uh, I'll fire the webmaster. And find <laughs> someone else. But maybe we'll link, uh, two half squads. That's a good idea. <laughs> maybe a good idea. Just well, this take- episode. What's what's taken us so long to get in touch with you guys too? I mean that's that's crazy. Two hundred and seventy-five shows, and we haven't even gotten in touch with. You. Someone had sent us an email probably five years ago and said, "Hey, call, interview these guys." It's just that's how we get backed up so much, and uh, it's amazing. But you know, two shows a month, and then it's like, wow, where did the year go? And then the next year, and um, but yeah, we're, we're we think we've said I think it was Jeff's idea, like even. I don't even know. Five, ten years ago, he's like, we should just start interviewing all the different clubs. Yeah. And it's probably the time we made that offhand comment that someone sent us the email <laughs> you know, recommending well, you guys. Uh, again, the, the 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 beauty and the pain of ASL is that uh, very few, if any of us, get to do this full time. So yeah, yeah it's it's always on the side <laughs> when you've got time for it. Well, and it wasn't that long ago when we were kind of scraping for ideas for the show um, because they're just one of the big parts of the show is introducing new products and stuff like that. And it was so rare. And we, for years, we got mileage out of, out of the fact that there were so few products available. We would be making jokes about uh, Kota Bushido and stuff like that and all this stuff being out of print. Now the stuff is just spewing out. It's being shot out of cannons. It's just (laughs) unbelievable. Every time you turn around, there's more products in. So how do you guys keep up with that? Are you you buying it all, John? Are you buying everything that comes out, or how are you I, pacing I yourself? I am with that? now buying and I'm now buying an archival set because I I fear this current rush of production is the beginning of the end. Right, like mm. the stewards mm. of the hobby are 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 you know getting on in their years, and they're no longer going to be able to crank stuff out and. Uh, Now's the time to, you know, top off all the collections because I'm afraid in the not too distant future, we'll go back to this drought season where products are few and far between. Yeah, that's a great point, John. And the other part of it is, is that, you know, all of these publishers, MMP and the third third party publishers, you know, they, they do a limited production run. And a lot of times when it's done, it's done. That's it. Um, so if something comes out that that uh, looks interesting to you or, or you think you might want it, you should just buy it. That way you've got it. Um, hopefully you'll get a chance to play with it. <laughs> yeah, I have that operation. Also, um, oh, go ahead, John. So I was going to say it also might be time to start thinking about like um, you know changes to the game. Um, and, I, and I'm not saying this is anything we need to rush. But we could still have the fundamentally the same game, but make some changes to the rules to make it easier, more accessible, etc. So, you know, for example, why why do we need half inch counters? Why can't all counters be five eighths of an inch? You know, there's real there's no real reason that we have to have some counters smaller than others, and True. you know, the smaller counters are harder to read and harder to grasp. Um, so you know, it might be time to start thinking about, well, what if we had a, a version where all the counters were five-eighths of an inch? And then, you know, we've all struggled with the minutia of the rules. And, you know, there are certain simple adjustments one could make that would alleviate a lot of complexity but still preserve the core game. And so no harm in talking about those things. And that might be one way to sort of, uh, you know, increase the game's longevity. Yeah, and you mean be beyond starter kit, 
changes something not as drastic yeah 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 like we haven't like we haven't had a new edition since what like 1980 something that's the last time we had an edition yeah um everything you know has been fundamentally the same since then and I, I understand why, and I'm not upset about it. I'm just saying, after 40 years of experimentation, yeah. <laughs> we've probably learned a few things, and it wouldn't be bad to make some changes. You know, um, one thing I like to toy with is, what if there were no advance phase? And you, when you start thinking about that, you realize, man, this game could play much faster with fewer arguments. And uh, some considerable ease if we didn't have an advanced phase, and and that's uh, hmm. what I'm talking about. Is there's some fundamental things in there that um, are not necessarily sort of uh, integral to the simulation. They're just that you know that's what the original designers cooked up, um, and 40 years of practice has shown. Well, maybe that's not so necessary. Well, and then we can always get into religious arguments. Uh, I feel like uh, ASLers are the the kind of people who, who might be somewhat more resistant or skeptical to change, John. I think those are some interesting points. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, but yeah. take a look at the, at the regular fire, the infantry fire table versus the incremental fire table. Right. Oh yeah, I played with people who were never ever using incremental fire table. I personally think it's a really good idea. I mean, how many times have you had three firepower, three three and a half firepower? Again, you know, it seems more realistic to me, right? That, yeah. That you'd want to fire the squad and the machine gun, but oh, sorry, it doesn't quite work out on the table, so I'm not going to find the machine gun. Mm. Yeah. Well, today, all good points. Yeah, today Jeff saved a, a light machine gun by not using it in the advancing fire phase and rolling an eleven. <laughs> yeah. So, but as as Bob Holmstrom said on this show quite a while back, the problem is, Dave, basically I have the um, original um, table. I have it memorized. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, I've heard that. I've heard so that. To, you know, yeah. go, to, go to the one. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a good enough, not a good enough argument. Yeah. But it's an interesting idea. Um, John, it would be certainly, you know, as if I, when I think about it, I think, man, that would be a massive undertaking. But maybe yeah, not. Maybe I don't know. It, yeah. Well, it'd be huge because so many people are committed to the prevailing system, and there's a good reason yeah. for that. You know, we have a stable rule set that sustains a large community, so I can always find an opponent. So I'm not saying our, our current approach is bad, but I am saying, you know, when you look at the rules from a, a logical point of view, you have to ask some questions and see some of these are whether you, it's not a question of realism or, or, or that. It's just a question of the game would we could keep it fundamentally the same but make it run better you know for example the advanced phase when they created in, in asl when they created assault movement they essentially got rid of the whole reason for the advanced phase you know when squad leader first came out in the 70s oh. the advanced phase was created expressly to simulate that sort of slow close to oh. to contact movement you know and that's what that yeah. was about. Um, I did. And then ten, 10 years later, they cook up this assault move concept and put it in the rules. That, that got rid of the need for the advance phase. Um, and so you, one could just say, as long as you move only one hex, you can enter an enemy-occupied hex. You know? um, and assault move simulates a cautious, slow movement that used to be uh, sort of assumed in the advance phase. And then, you know, the existence of the advanced phase yeah. um, violates a sort of one of the one of the fundamental maxims of a sort of modern warfare. And it's that movement draws fire in the advanced phase. You can violate that. That's like, a, you know, that is to warfare as uh, e, e equals MC squared is to physics. But we're, we're violating that every time we conduct an advanced phase because you can advance into the street. And nobody can shoot at you. You know, um, and then there's that whole skulking thing, and whether you like it or not, yeah. you agree with it or disagree with it, <laughs> that whole argument would just float away if we didn't have an advanced phase. Yeah, true. That's no matter exactly. what side you were on. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because again, the first time I saw that done was my friend Wally that taught me the system back in '85, 
kicking and screaming. Yeah. He dragged me through all the rule sections, and uh, yeah, he did that skulk. And I'm like, well, that's that's just doesn't make any sense. And he's like, well, we're hiding, I guess now, and then we're popping back up yeah. the window. And I'm like, well, but if you're hiding, I don't know, it doesn't make sense, Wally. And he's like, yeah, man, maybe not, but it's it's something you can do, I guess. And uh, and I think he yeah. and I were just teaching it's a ourselves of the turn structure. Yeah. Yeah. Right, exactly. That's just a consequence of the turn structure. And, you know, again, you don't have to like it or not or argue for it or against it, but its existence complicates and prolongs the game. Yes. And so one could streamline. And you would still have the fundamentals of the game. The fundamentals of fire and movement, leadership, would still be there. Uh, but you wouldn't have this all of this thought going into how to take advantage of the turn structure. Yeah, that's... And then I wonder if that would affect the, the lengths of the games. Like, if everyone's now playing it with skulking, and then if we took it out, it would exactly. it might change some of the dynamics of how long, yeah. it, you know, you have. They'd get shorter. The games would get shorter. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, you got to prep, and then you can't move, and the whole thing. It's a great point. Never really thought of that. Um, and I think MMP missed the boat on the redoing all the boards. Those should have been larger. Texas, is that... Do you guys agree or? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's another option is, you know, the hexes don't have to be a certain size. You could modify the size it, of the hexes. It's, so there's yeah. things we could explore. <laughs> so if the Catholic huh? Church can change, we can change. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, don't write but, us, folks. If you disagree yeah. with any of this, write to John. He, he's like the Andrew Yang <laughs> of the uh, ASL world. Yeah, the views and thoughts ex expressed on the show are not necessarily the opinions of the hosts. Um, but, <laughs> but it makes the, for good good viewing. It does. Yeah, that's yes, right. It does. When yeah. I went went back to live playing live, you know, face to face the, a couple weeks ago here, I got out that stuff. Everything looked small to me. Yeah. The counters looked teeny, and the yeah. I don't know if I was enlarging it on Vassal. And then everything looked teeny. And I have these boards that somehow they're larger than the normal scale boards, if you've noticed on Twitter. Um, and and I got out one of the original boards, and the thing is, it just looks so teeny. And then you got used to playing on historical size, right? That's a good size. Like Red Barricades, right? Yeah. It's just slightly larger. Right, right. There's a little room. Yeah, give you some room. Yeah. Yeah, they're small. Well, we're going close to an hour here. Um, what are we missing? Anything uh, you guys want to add or clarify? Or well, uh, I'd just love to thank you guys for for doing all the uh, great work that that you do. Uh, I think uh, I think your podcast, you know, Two Half Squads, it's a great resource uh, for both a, a rules walk and explanation. And uh, I really enjoy. Uh, your shows in which you interview the uh, the producers of some of these new games, um, you know, for advance for for uh, example, the Biazzo Ridge podcast I thought was uh, I thought was really informative, um, you know, so things like that. It's uh, I always find it interesting to hear about or to learn what the designer was thinking when he you know chose to do a certain thing vice uh, something else. So uh, I think stuff like that is really interesting. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I, I like yeah, how both sense. of our clubs or our names, both of our names are demeaning, like half, <laughs> yeah, half squads and conscripts. There's no big egos we're dealing with with both yeah. of our groups. Here. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's totally. Well, right. it's been great having you guys on. Really a really a pleasure. And uh, sorry it took so well, thanks long. Thanks for hosting. Uh, hopefully no it was thanks worth it. Thanks for hosting it. and thanks for organizing. Yeah, Dave, yeah, yeah. Jeff, thank you for uh, taking time to talk to us. It's been a blast. Yeah, yeah we look forward been. to staying in touch and uh, hearing about uh, how the uh, human wave turns out, and uh, we'll stay in touch. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, we'll take some pictures. Oh, terrific. Yeah, yeah that bye -bye. would be great. All right, then. So, so we'll do our we... usual sign-off. Yeah, That's which right. Is, uh, we say, ro remember to roll low. And rally well. But, but not, not when you're playing, playing us. us. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh, boy. All right, thanks, guys. Bye-bye, okay. everybody. Thanks. All right, take care.